Easter changes everything. It really does. It is not just something that pastors say to get their people hyped up uh, for the Easter time. It's, uh, it's bigger than that. It really does change everything. And it's always important for us to know that not just on Easter, and even not just arguably the days right after Easter, but really throughout our entire lives, Easter changes everything. You think about what we just celebrated last week, <clears throat> celebrated last week, Easter, what did it change for you? Well, what is everything? Well, think about uh, what, what Easter means, right? The empty tomb is essentially the receipt that you get to hold to say that the check has cleared the bank, your sins are absolutely forgiven, paid in full, Satan cannot harm you, and that means you have nothing in your way between you and a relationship with God. The sin is removed. Jesus paid for all those sins, took all of those sins away from you, and what did he give you in exchange? It gave you a new life. He gave you righteousness. He gave you his perfect record with God so that when God looks at you through faith, he sees like his perfect son, Jesus. That's what he sees. What that practically then means is you think about it, uh, death, this thing that's going to come for every single one of us, you got nothing to fear. Death is not the end because uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he said it in the Bible. He says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? He taunts death, right? Because of Easter. You have nothing to fear. Death is not the end. Death is the beginning. Death is the beginning of a new perfected life with God, and you have a resurrection just like Jesus to look forward to. Uh, Easter changes everything. But I find in my ministry that uh, oftentimes what seems to dominate the conversation around Easter is usually like end-of-life stuff, which is appropriate when we're talking about the Son of Man who died and rose, and when we're thinking about ourselves when we die and rise, and, and how it changes our eternity, that's appropriate. But it's not meant to be that, okay, great, Jesus died, Jesus rose, and now I'm just going to twiddle my thumbs and wait for him to come and take me home Easter doesn't just change your future reality, it changes your present reality. The present life of a Christian. And if I were to summarize, I guess if you wanted to say, what does it do for the Christian? How, how does it change them? What, what does it do for a, a disciple of Christ? What it simply does is it makes them different. And sometimes when we hear different, we think, I don't like that. No, we're going to hear this resounding echo throughout the weeks coming up here that with Jesus, different is always a good thing. And maybe the best way to see this kind of lived out, like an example, would be in the disciples. Uh, Jesus' disciples, the 11 that remain, uh, see them pre-Easter and post-Easter. You see the dichotomy of the two. Uh, Pre-Easter, before Jesus rose, what were the disciples? These kind of prideful, slightly arrogant, overestimating themselves, and then fearful, locked behind doors for fear of the Jews, uh, cowardly disciples. And then after Easter, and if you were to follow the narrative of what happens, you start reading the book of Acts, the events right after Jesus rose and everything, you would see these disciples being bold and courageous and news spreading and grace abounding and not fearful of anything disciples they it's like they're, they're night and day different what happened easter easter changed everything for them they're, they're different and and for that matter it wasn't just them you see this starting up in the 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 first church we call it right 50 days after easter or excuse me uh 
yeah, 50 days after Easter, after the, the Passover celebration, they have this celebration called Pentecost, and there's a whole bunch of Jews back in Jerusalem, and, and long story short, they get to share this message of the Easter resurrection with thousands of people, and what does God do? Changes thousands of people with that message. And how do we know he changes them? Because Scripture tells us they look so different. They took their stuff, and they shared it with people they otherwise wouldn't have. They took some more of their stuff, and they sold it and gave it to people, so much so that Scripture says there was no one among them who had a need. Imagine that. They crossed socio and economic barriers and boundaries that they otherwise would not have done. And it's so noticeable that everybody inside the confines of Jerusalem is looking at this church and saying, these guys are different in a really good way. It's really attractive. We really like this. What makes you guys tick? What happens? And they share the news of Easter and more and more people God is adding to their numbers daily, Scripture tells us, because they lived I wonder if the same could be said for much of Christianity today. You see, for, for too many people, especially in our country, too many people view Jesus, view his teaching, view his person, view Christianity as essentially this thing that I kind of do on the side it's something that I kind of go along with. It's something that I kind of add to my life. Or maybe it's, it's like this label that we'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, absolutely. Kind of like this, this bumper sticker that you just slap on the back end of your car and say, Christian, yeah, good, Jesus, yay, hero, awesome, I love it. Does it actually change your life? No. Is it actually an operating principle from your day-to-day -day life? Maybe not. Does it affect the way you, you, you do things and think things and... And maybe for so many people, you look at their life and they say they self-identify as a Christian and compare it to some of their friends, their families, or anyone else who was not, and you can't tell the difference. And if that's the case, then maybe what we have is a misunderstanding of Easter, a misunderstanding of Jesus, a misunderstanding of Christianity, what it means to be a follower, maybe what we really have is a discipleship issue. And so that's why over the course of the next several weeks, we're really going to be kind of going through Scripture and unpacking this idea of, okay, if Easter changed everything, then what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a Christian, to call yourself a follower of Christ? What does it mean? to say that you're a Christian, what does that look like? And today we're going to kind of open up the lid on this conversation and start to answer it through the eyes of someone who kind of approaches Jesus with a lot of these questions too, a man named Nicodemus. Now first we've got to ask the question, well, who in the world is this man named Nicodemus? Well, Nicodemus, John tells us in chapter 3 that he's a Pharisee and he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's known as the Sanhedrin. Uh, this is the big Sanhedrin. This is like the Supreme Court, the religious Supreme Court. So he's a, a very powerful and influential individual. And this is early on in Jesus' ministry. Jesus had just kind of come onto the scene. 
Uh, John the Baptist is still doing his ministry too. And, and Jesus is there and Jesus is doing miracles. And he's teaching. And people start to take notice. And as fast as news spreads in those days, it's going out like crazy, right? Uh, and, and people are seeing this Jesus guy as this kind of celebrity. He's getting some, some fame. Word about him is spreading. And the Sanhedrin takes notice. They're not fooled. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus on behalf of some of those people from the Sanhedrin, but John tells us he comes at night. And that could maybe be for a couple reasons. Some have said, well, maybe Nicodemus, he just kind of doesn't want to be associating with like different teachers and he doesn't want anyone else to notice him, so I'll go over to the cover of darkness. Or maybe he's thinking, well, I'm going to go to Jesus and do some backdoor politicking kind of thing. Hey, Jesus, uh, we, we've noticed you and we think that we can work out something where we can kind of help one another out. Maybe that's true. Either way, he goes to Jesus, but as a Pharisee, as someone on the ruling council, what sets Nicodemus apart from almost every other conversation you see Jesus having with a religious leader in Scripture is the genuineness, it seems. The respect that he gives to Jesus. This is not a conversation where Nicodemus is blowing Jesus off. So he approaches Jesus, and this is where we're going to pick it up today, in what he says. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. He says, Jesus, we know you're different. You're turning water into wine. We can't do that. You're doing these miracles, healing people, you're different, and it's pretty obvious that you're different than us, that, that you're, you're from God. We, we get that. But did you notice how he approaches Jesus? Rabbi. You know, you're a teacher. Rabbi, essentially, a teacher. It's a, it's a nice title. It's not meant to be disrespectful at all. Uh, Rabbi, you're, you're a good teacher. We can tell that. But it's almost like before he can get another word out, Jesus stops him. And Jesus is essentially thinking, like, let's get one thing straight here. You've got some misunderstanding going on. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And I used to read this all the time thinking, like, okay, he's saying you're a teacher. Now you're talking about being born again. What do those two things have to do with one another? It makes sense. Nicodemus is approaching Jesus essentially as a teacher, essentially as someone kind of on his level maybe, and Jesus is basically saying, if I am from God, as you say, then what you need to understand is that you cannot just see me as a teacher. You cannot see what I have and what I'm doing as if it's something that you can just kind of add to your life. See, the approach that Nicodemus has to Jesus is essentially the approach that so many people, people who are new to Christianity or people who have even been raised their whole life in, in a church or something, this is the approach that so many people have to Christianity, that it's essentially something that I can just kind of add to my life. For instance, some people say, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, to be a Christian means that you ha have a, a high moral sense. You live a really buttoned-up life. You repent of the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll, you know, those things like that. And what you do is you live uh, differently. You live of a higher moral standard. You clean up your life. Some people would say, well, what it means to be a Christian is you are deeply spiritual and deeply religious. You take those things seriously. You go to church. You pray. 
You read your Bible. You give your offerings. And you, you do devotions. And, and you be obedient to what God says. You take those things seriously. And so some would say, well, what it really means to be a Christian is I know a factoid knowledge about who Jesus is, right? John 3.16. Got it memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. And so if I know that nugget of truth, I'm good. And I'm fine. And I can just continue on living my life because I'm saved, I'm covered, I've got it all taken care of. And Jesus, with this whole conversation, with just this verse, he says, no. That is not what it means at all. How so? Tell me, is there anyone that you could think of who has a more buttoned-up life and a higher sense of morality than a Pharisee named Nicodemus who's on the religious ruling council? He had an impeccable life, an impeccable reputation among the people in society. And Jesus says, no. Is there anyone who was more spiritual or religious than Nicodemus? Nobody prayed more. Nobody knew their Old Testament better. Nobody went to the temple and sacrificed and did all of these things and was more obedient to God's law than Nicodemus. And he says no. Nicodemus even acknowledges, you're from God. We know this. There's no denying it of your divinity. And he says, you don't get it. Because every single one of those approaches has the same thing in common. I can take Jesus, I can take Christianity, and I can just sprinkle it into my life. I can do some stuff externally. All the while, I can still live my life how I want. And Jesus says, absolutely not. What it means to be in the kingdom of God, what it means to be a disciple, Jesus says, you have to be born again. Now, what exactly does that mean? <laughs> and that's what Nicodemus is basically asking. Huh? Like born again? Like, huh? Like, I can't, I, 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 don't, I don't get what you're saying, Jesus. He, he's thinking, okay, well, it's either physical or spiritual, what Jesus is talking about, and he can't possibly be talking about spiritually because I'm an impeccable human being. I'm like God's gift to his people. So he's got to be talking, and Jesus explains himself in the next verse. Look what he says. He says, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. And anytime you're reading scripture and it talks about rebirth, water, and the Spirit all together, you know what that's talking about? Baptism. Titus 3, the book of Acts, all over the place, it's talking about baptism. The miracle that God, through just simple water, but his miraculous word, the Holy Spirit uses to create a faith in someone, to strengthen a faith in someone. And have you ever noticed that when it comes to baptism, nobody baptizes themselves? Like we haven't had baptisms here where someone comes up and they just like take the shell of water and just dunk it kind of on themselves. Why not? You're probably thinking, because that's not how God designed it? Exactly. Like this is something that someone else does to you because a miracle of faith 
believing in Christ, it's not something that, okay, I had this emotional experience and, 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 and I, I chose it. It's not something that you come and you say, okay, I'm going to pray for Jesus to come into my, I'm going to choose this for my, no. It is something that is done to you that the Spirit works in you, which is why sometimes when we talk about uh, baptism, we talk about adoption. And you know how adoption works. Does the orphan in the orphanage tell the, the person who's running this, okay, I want to choose which family I go to. So line 10 of them up here, and let's just see. Okay, now I need to interview them. Okay, who's going to give me the most free time? Who's going to give me the most? No, the parents choose the kid. Right, that kid, that infant, that, that teen, whatever it is, they don't do anything. The parent chooses them. It's something that's totally being done to them, which is why when he says you must be born again, that analogy is so, so good. Does a baby decide it's time for me to get born? Like, I know sometimes we talk that way. Having had four kids, I, I understand the conversation. Oh, baby's ready. Baby's decided. Baby's saying it's time to come, right? I know we talk that way. You know that's not how it works. It's not like the baby is cooking inside there saying, time's up. Eject button, here we go, I'm coming. <laughs> That's not quite, okay? No, who does the birthing? It's mom. It's her body. It's her labor that gives birth to this kid. And Nicodemus is wrestling with this and saying, but you can't do this. This isn't something that I can cause. I can't create this. And Jesus says, exactly it has to be something that is done to you. You can't manufacture this and just sprinkle this onto your life and carry out your life as it is. No, you know what a rebirth is? It is a new identity from which you live from. And if it is a new identity out of which you live from, the fundamental operating principle of your life, then it makes sense that if it's a new and different identity, your life will look different which is what Jesus says next. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He says, just like the Spirit operates is the same way the wind operates. You can't cause it, but you can tell it's there. How do you know if it's windy outside? Well, you, you look out the window are the leaves blowing? Are the branches, the trees swaying, the grass moving? Are there, the, the windmills are turning, the kids are flying the kites, right? There's, there's evidence that the wind is blowing. So if I were to talk to you about the tornado that went through Crete last night, you guys heard about that, right? And you're all giving me blank looks, like, what are you talking about? Yeah, there was a tornado that came up Highway 1 here, and then it kind of moved a little bit east down exchange and just went all the way to Indiana. And you'd say, well, if I came up from Beecher or if I came up this way or whatever way you came from, you, you'd say, you're full of it, Pastor. Why? Because there's no, there's no trees down. There's no shingles in the road. There's no branches. There's no power outages. Nothing laying down. There's no evidence that there was a tornado going through Crete. And that's exactly Jesus' point. If you have the spirits in your life. You can't cause it, but you can see the evidence of it at work. 
that there should be so much tornadic activity going on in your life that, that people can say, that person's different. Now with that then, let me ask you this question. Do you think it's possible for the almighty God who created the heavens and the earth, the universe itself, to have his spirit come into your life and it wouldn't blow around your hair a little bit? What I mean is that, can you say you have the spirit of God and he wouldn't mess up your relationships? That he wouldn't mess with how you view your stuff and things like money and finances? That he wouldn't look at your calendar and blow it up for his priorities, for his kingdom? I know... I've been doing this enough, not too long, but enough to know that when, when people tend to hear something like this, maybe one of our first reactions is to think of, oh, my brother needs to, oh, you know, my sister, I got a girlfriend who needs to hear that. Stop. You. Think about it for you. Is there some area of your life that the Spirit is just non-existent? Is he messing with how you view your time, your priorities, your stuff, your kids, your family, the way you raise them to know God or not? Is, is that happening? Or is, is Jesus this, this God that you just look at and kind of this label that you say, yeah, I show up, yep, I belong to a church. Mm -hmm. I know of too many Christians who are hanging on to dusty confirmation certificates as evidence of their faith. Too many self-identifying disciples who would look at something like, yeah, I'm a member of a church, but maybe it doesn't matter if they've been in years or whatever. Too many self-identifying Christians who simply say, well, yeah, I, don't worry about me because I still remember that thing that I learned about Jesus once, even if it hasn't changed my life. And that's evidence of my faith. I was that. Is Christianity just a label you slap on there and say, yeah, I, I guess I could identify as that, but, but you're living an entirely different life. That it is not your identity. Now, this is hard. If this is causing you to, to chew on it, you're in really good company because that's how Nicodemus was too. Nicodemus is sitting there and he's trying to understand and he just says, how in the world could it be? I can't cause this. I can't do this. You're, you're saying that this is like a, a total new identity. What in the world? And what Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't point Nicodemus back to himself. Instead, he points him to where rebirth, where reawakening happens. And he points him back to him in one of, uh, one of the more obscure examples from the Old Testament that foreshadows Jesus. He says, just as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What, what, is, he, what is he talking about there? Well, he knows Nicodemus knows his Old Testament. And so he, he says, Nicodemus, do you remember that story from Numbers chapter 21? 
the Israelites, uh, they had been in slavery and oppression in Egypt, and God had rescued them, delivered them. They crossed the Red Sea, but almost immediately, they start grumbling, and they start complaining, and they start complaining. All this while, God says, okay, I'm going to need to discipline you. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and the whole time, they just have had enough. The leadership stinks, and the food stinks, and this is getting old. Let's just go back to Egypt. We had so much better then, and God, as a punishment, he sends snakes. Yeah snakes, venomous snakes all throughout the camp. It's a little weird for us to read this, like, God did that? Yeah, God did that. He sends these snakes out there, and they start biting the people, and they, and they get sick, and the venom sinks in, and they start dying. Thousands of people start dying, and everybody realizes this is from God, and they cry out to God, we messed up. We deserve this. We're sorry. What? And so God says, Moses, here's the cure. Here's the anti-venom. What I want you to do is I want you to do, uh, get a bronze snake, craft it, and Attach it to a pole. Snake's on a pole, not a plane. Snake's on a pole. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to attach it, lift it high up in the air, and I want you to tell someone that if they want to be saved, lift your eyes onto that serpent and you will be healed. And as obscure as that sounds and looks, and maybe even to Nicodemus, like he might have just been saying, yeah, it's a little weird. Jesus simply says, just as that serpent was lifted up, So the Son of Man, the one you claim to be from heaven, has to be lifted up. Nicodemus, do you understand? That foreshadows me. Because you see, the thing that affected Nicodemus is the thing that affects every single one of us. Satan, all the way back in the garden, that serpent, sank his teeth and his venom into humanity and caused Adam and Eve to be all about themselves. My wants, my desires, what I want to do, elevate myself, my identity above what God is. And that venom has protruded all throughout humanity ever since. And as we saw on Good Friday, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, was lifted into the air on a cross, enduring all the venom your sin, of my sin, the world's sin, Satan's venom, all onto himself. And he says, lift your eyes. That is where life is found. A life that is primarily about you is the death of a relationship with a God. But if you lift your eyes, surrender yourself to the cross, to Jesus, and build your life on that, And that is where new life is found. If you do that, you will start to see the Spirit blowing in your life. But understand, it rarely ever happens over the length of a sermon. Rarely ever does it happen where we leave this and That totally transformed my life, and I'm totally, I I wish, make make me out of a job. But it doesn't. It takes time. It takes a process. It takes chewing on something, right? We talk about it as fruit of the Spirit. Tell me, what, what fruit do you know grows overnight, just like that? Apple tree, one day it was a bud, the next day, oh, it's a full grown apple. No, that's mechanical. We'd love it if it works that way. Uh uh. 
Organic growth takes time, takes effort, takes nutrients. So are you going to grow? Are you going to chew on these words? Are you going to think about it? Are you going to pray about it? Are you going to be there with God and his people in a community, in the words, surrounded with them? That's where this growth happens. That's where this change takes place. Because that's what happened to Nicodemus. Sometimes we have these stories where Jesus has this encounter with someone. We don't hear anything about them. And sure, in John 3, we don't hear any more from Nicodemus. All the way until John 19. Where John 19, what happened in that chapter? Jesus was crucified. And we're told in John 19 that Nicodemus was there. And he saw it. And I wonder if when he didn't see Jesus on the cross arms stretched out wide, the Son of Man lifted up, that he didn't think back to this conversation. He knew. He got it. Three years of chewing and processing, and what is Jesus saying? He gets it. So much so that after Jesus dies, he, with one other person, goes and asks for the body of Jesus, which is something so radical, we think, okay, he's taking a body down. As a member of the ruling council, you didn't do that. Some commentaries say he was risking his very life by doing this. To identify with a supposed sinner, blasphemer, supposed pretender king was tantamount to saying, you're in allegiance with him, we might as well kill you too. Some say that. What I can tell you for certainty at the very least, he's risking his position, his authority, his reputation. He's risking his identity, his very seat on the council by doing this. Why would he do it? Because that's not his identity anymore. He's born again. And the spirit you can see is blowing in his life because he's got a new identity. He's taken the focus off of himself. He's put it on Christ And the Spirit is changing his life, and he's living different. May God grant that same Spirit to blow in your life and be different.